I'm not here to tell you that we're a good value. I'm not here to tell you we're luxury for less. That's your decision. You're going to tell me what you think we're worth, and that will come out in the NPS score. You know, if we're not the right value for money, let's fix that. That's Luke Droulet, the chief marketing officer of Parachute, a direct-to-consumer brand that launched with just sheets but has since expanded to sell a range of home goods. Luke was founder Ariel K's first hire, working in operations and digital before taking the reins of the company's marketing efforts. For the last four years, he's developed Parachute's marketing strategy, experimenting with channel after channel and market after market. I'm Richie Siegel, the founder of Loose Threads, which analyzes and advises next-generation consumer companies, and Facelift by Loose Threads, which provides retail strategy and infrastructure for leading brands and retailers. For our latest analysis and insights, check out our free weekly newsletter at loosethreads.com. This is the first episode of the Megaphone Podcast, the second show in the Loose Threads Podcast Network, where we talk with marketers, analysts, and advertising professionals navigating the roller coaster ride of building a consumer brand in the 21st century. Though the number of digitally native brands has exploded because of Facebook and Google's advertising networks, the efficiency of these paid advertising solutions is not what they used to be, throwing a wrench in the plans of those looking to scale quickly and cheaply. Instead, CMOs have a real task on their hands. That's why I was excited to talk with Luke about Parachute's marketing evolution over the last five years and how the brand has navigated the chaos. Here's how they did it. The first year was all owned and earned media. So we are fortunate, like right prior to me joining, Ariel had hired a PR agency and secured like the initial launch press. And then, you know, the Wall Street Journal hit and it like broke our website, basically. <laughs> Ran out of all of our inventory. It was a lot of hard lessons learned in terms of how when you violate any kind of customer expectations, it really penalizes you. It went from like an LTV basis. And I think I, that was a good lesson to learn at such a small scale because I've never forgotten it. In terms of when stuff goes out? Yeah, or? like when things went out of stock and we weren't able to fulfill it very quickly because you're working on a three to four month lead time. You know, we were so early within planning and a little bit capital constrained where it's like we were simultaneously balancing the premise of a pre-order revenue with the reality of being able to fill said expectations. You know, it's like people who are 100% within our target market are reading about us on Wall Street Journal and can't buy anything. Or they're buying something and it's delayed or out of, so I had to call like 50 to 100 customers and explain the situation. It just was a good empathy training in terms of how important it is to frame customer expectations mm-hmm. correctly. So early on, it sounds like you saw basically a direct correlation between press and sales. Yeah. 2014 was a time where press was so important. There was less of the affiliate component. And so like you could see the press numbers directly and you could see how important they were. As we built that out, we simultaneously focused on kind of owned media. So our blog, like what kind of content could we use to enrich our ecosystem, social, and then email. Those were kind of the big drivers. And then the earned media. Like I think with the earned media, it was a time again where it was the whole D2C story. It basically wrote itself. It's funny now it feels old and tired and I would never talk about us as cutting out the middleman or luxury for less or any of those truisms but it was very much like of the moment almost it feels like two periods in which a ton of brands launched like 2011 2012 and then 2014 2015 yeah and so being a part of that second wave phase two is yeah phase two yeah being a part of phase two we got the benefit of having like our forefathers who kind of heightened consumer awareness for these types of brands and then i think we had the added benefit of being in the home which was unique 
we had seen before us other verticals within the retail world disrupted, for lack of a better term, and the home was the new space. Got because that. these were products that, I'm going to be honest with you, are very mundane. You know, nobody is like getting excited about sheets, or at least nobody was getting excited about sheets and soft goods. Most people think about the home in terms of their living room, the places where you host people and the places where you gather, not necessarily what I think we call in parachute closed door environments, your bedroom, your bathroom. They aren't places that you want to Instagram about, that you want to show people, that you want to share with people. Definitely. And so I think as we brought awareness to that, it was very much press worthy. I think we were fortunate and there was not that many entrants. So we had the first mover advantage of anytime somebody talked about the home, we would then come in tow. How do you build content and run email campaigns when you know you're out of stock? <laughs> That's a million dollar question. So content you can still create. The main vehicle for building out our blog content in the early days was consumer outreach. You know, if you're only selling three or four prepackaged sheet sets and three to four colors and two fabrications, the questions were easier at first. And it's like, does thread count matter? No. And we created a blog post about it. What's the difference between per cal and sateen? We created a blog it's post. It's almost turning about like it. an FAQ into. Yeah. You know, I think enriching it. You know, yeah. FAQs traditionally are like T's and C's. You know, you just gloss over them. I'd rather talk to a real person or engage with a real thing. It's very unique. We always built our blog on WordPress. You know, you can build a blog through Shopify, but it's not as rich or robust. Right. So we made a deliberate decision to almost create a standalone editorial site. Not to the effect of trying to monetize it, but rather to be perceived as a thought leader within the home space, and that was a vehicle to do so. If you think about the purchase decision, like the who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, we also had to explain like why the product was more expensive. When you work with multi-generational family factories in Italy, it, it costs more money. When you get Ocotec certification, which is the highest level of you know, sustainable and environmentally friendly certification for your products, that costs more money. But for the layman, these are things that you don't think about. And then the way that we would inject content on the site is we'd almost have these little informative content boxes that would be on product pages or category pages. So it was a immersive experience. And then with emails, I think we learned a lot about how and when to email people. We weren't worried about cadence. It was like, send out an email when you think you should send out an email. And I like that. I still kind of adhere by that policy of like less is more because as you know, we would come to find in ensuing years, it's just like once the quality goes down and any kind of associated metrics, then the only way to make up with it is quantity. As far as the organic social, the early years were kind of an exploration. You know, we built our first Pinterest boards. We tested out Twitter. It was just trying to see like, where are we getting the most traction? And I think as we started to post more on Instagram, that started to take fruit. And I think the places in which we saw it is in the early days, we would hand write notes to all of our customers and people would Instagram about it. So it was like we noticed that the little touches were making a difference. And we also noticed that people were excited to share about their parachute experiences. In the early days, it was very much about the unboxing experience. That was a time where like the novelty of a mm -hmm. D2C brand unboxing was very real. So a lot of the, I think, consumer sharing was around unboxing. In later days, it would be more about the product experience and more about like, how do I interact with the product or how do I style the product or how does my family like the product? And those created like much more meaningful moments. So you mentioned, I guess, moving from year one to year two is when you started to invest more into the paid side. Yeah. Talk about the anatomy of that decision. Was it 
we're doing so much organic that we're seeing limitations? Is it we can put more muscle behind this if we go into paid? How did that, I guess, change start to come about? We didn't have any capital to spend on marketing. So all of our equity dollars were put into inventory. That is a very inefficient way to buy inventory, but it was the only way. It's not like we are going to go to a bank and say like, hey, we have this limited financial history. Can you give us a lot of money to buy inventory? <laughs> so pretty much all of the equity and debt dollars that we raised went directly into inventory. I think once we were able to close our first meaningful round in, I think I believe it was March of 2015, then came the opportunity to see like, can we scale this kind of base level of awareness? We've proven the product market fit. We have loyal early adopters. We have traction in all 50 states. We're even seeing inbound demand internationally. Like, let's see what we can do with this. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you had product market fit or how did you know? Prior to joining Parachute, I would consider myself among the very many who had the disposable income to afford what would be that price point, but wasn't aware of the benefits of having nicer bedding. If someone were to show me that price point, it was kind of like, this is a considered purchase. Like, what am I going to do? Because it's a more considered purchase, my expectation would be that people would take longer to buy it. But what we saw is that like within interacting with us from a press standpoint, people would buy within a week or two weeks from what we are seeing in Google Analytics. And I think that was kind of the, okay, I think we can potentially turn this into a paid media strategy. And so that's what influenced that decision. And then once we had the capital, it was kind of like, let's test through the different marketing channels and see which one makes the most sense for the business. Looking back, there is, of course, waste. I think you're in a place where for the first time you have money to spend. And it almost felt like somebody subliminally sent out a PR newswire to every ad salesperson in the world that we had money to spend. I bet you people just subscribe to like TechCrunch mm -hmm. notifications and are like, okay, they're ready. So like we were a part of a, this thing called Google Launchpad. We have found great success with Google now. So this is nothing to knock them. It's just during that pilot platform, we ended up spending $90,000 on predominantly display ads. <laughs> Which are known to be kind of cheap. Pretty terrible. Yeah. Like yeah. I've never heard of a brand that was built on display ads ever. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that burnt, you know, yeah. I was the first like, oh shit. Okay. And like, you know, with banner ads, it's like, there's so many forms of targeting. It's like keyword contextual and like affinity based and none of them worked. We got some good lessons in terms of non-branded search and like protecting your brand, given that at the time Parachute was not ranked number one. There's a town in Colorado called Parachute. There is a band called Parachute. I didn't know this, but a Parachute <laughs> is a product that people use sometimes. <laughs> so it was like competing with Wikipedia and all of these huh. things like uh, the brand search learnings were really good and the, the display learnings of like, this is terrible, we're good. I got kind of my first on hands understanding of site engagement, like, oh, 90% bounce rate means like really only 10% of the traffic is good. <laughs> the other thing that we started testing a little bit was content syndication. So it's like we had all of this great press and it was clear that the press was resonating. So we started looking for vehicles to syndicate it. You know, it was a time where Outbrain and Taboola were not classified ad sections at the bottom of every website. Clickbait wasn't what it is today. That did really well for us. We did Facebook for the first time with content syndication, which, you know, now content marketing on Facebook is a no brainer. But at the time that did incredibly well for us. I think the biggest unlock that came was when Facebook introduced lookalike audiences. Up until that point, targeting was hard. 
you know, we tried buying likes, which as we all have learned now is essentially like lighting money on fire. You know, we did audience and interest targeting and yes, the social graph was getting better, but I think it wasn't until Facebook introduced a lookalike ad product and essentially did what a lot of advertisers could have done, but didn't that the business fundamentally changed. Mm -hmm. That was like, to me, a huge inflection point because it's like now we were able to scale the business very cost efficiently. You know, if you think about the two big costs on advertising are media buying and then creative, our creative was essentially free. We paid for it implicitly through PR, but you know, if you repurpose an article, all you have to do is use the image and use the tagline. There's not much else beyond mm-hmm. that. So what do they look like? Cause you see, I guess more today, and, and I'm not sure if this is what you're describing where people will boost like the New York times article. The yeah. journal. Is that what you were doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But this is like triple OG. <laughs> this yes. was, this is the time ago. where like boosting someone's post was like, hot it was new because you're sending traffic to the media property yeah right you're not to yourself yeah it was very counterintuitive but it's like if you have the facebook pixel and you can you know stretch out your attribution window to seven days which we had proven was like roughly how long people were taking it aside it was like that actually made the most sense it kind of was informed by kind of what i was talking about before it's like social proof is really important when you make purchase decisions you look to other people for advice and so it's like yeah, Parachute can tell you to buy their product, but we never had first purchase discounts. Like the only levers that we were really playing with back then were free shipping for like email capture. And that's not so compelling that people are going to buy. So it really was like, I can't tell you why to buy the brand. I think like, what if we use the authority of other companies to do so? And like the nice thing with the earned media is that because it wasn't paid for, it was like legit content that said Parachute is great. And then what was cool is like it creates this nice flywheel where people come to the site, they purchase, you feed it into a lookalike algorithm, you then amplify content, rinse and repeat. Right. Is it kind of like a true almost network effect? Yeah. To advertising for. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same vehicle that built BuzzFeed and Mike.com's audiences is the same vehicle that built our customer base. And, you know, it didn't feel dirty because we weren't buying the articles. You know, the hard part within advertising is there's a fine line between selling and deception we never wanted to be on the wrong side of that yeah so that's why we anytime we did promote an article we would just verbatim take everything there because if we tried to put our editorial spin on it or change any of the copy or anything it was like wait what (laughs) yeah this is more of a theoretical question but if the idea of the lookalike is as it is stated we're going to find more people like your customers over and over does that ever end like i'm trying to think you take a brand like Goop that is very polarizing for what it is. Yeah. Do they have a finite audience <laughs> that they can run lookalikes on? Or are there always more people that fall into the bucket? I think that there is a finite audience. It's like if you somehow had this God mode where you could segment the entire U.S. population into affinity groups. I think that there is. I think what's interesting about lookalike audiences is it's nonlinear in the approach into quote unquote unlocking them it's not always as straightforward as like, these are the people that spent the most money or these are the people that bought this product. Like we have found success with lookalike audiences that seemingly are too wide in their application. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost the learning is like, let the Facebook algorithm sadly, you know, do its thing, like hand over the controls. And, And that was kind of interesting in the early days in terms of thinking about like, if we were to work with an influencer, if we were to advertise on a site, like what would be that site? Because, you know, we did dabble in some sponsored content. And so it's like knowing where 
somebody did visit is where we would do the sponsored content. Generally like an email or something kind of like transient because again, nothing is as good as real press again, as it should be. Yep. Or nothing is as good as somebody saying, I really love this brand without it saying hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored, you know, like true authenticators genuinely loving your brand is what we want. And it's like a lot of advertising is trying to understand how people would do that organically. In the first year of the paid strategy, was the sentiment like, oh, wow, we just unlocked this thing. Like this party can go on forever. Was it, wow, this organic stuff was really nice. Like, I hope we don't get away from it. Like what's going through, I guess, your mind then? Once we got investors and had some more adults in the room, it was kind of like, don't lose track of your organic traffic and your organic site direct and brand search. Because if those numbers start to diminish, you have to literally build the entire business on paid media. And I think as we've seen in the past, that is completely unsustainable. The freewheeling days are going to end and they did. And it's like, you need to make sure that the base of your business works. And so the thing that we did basically all in Excel, it would like break my computer would be looking at cohort analyses for the first time and saying like, what are the repeat rates looking like? looking at Google Analytics and making sure, like, are we still getting high quality traffic that is unpaid? And I think what was good is that even once we introduced paid media, the paid media traffic would be really shitty. But the percentage of conversions coming from brand, organic, and site direct would still be very high quality. And from a last click basis, we've benefited as a brand where like the majority to the vast majority of our conversions from year one to present have come through organic brand search and site direct. Right, which means you pay less. Yeah, it creates an attribution problem, but it's a happy attribution problem because it means that, I like to think of it as like if your advertising is working, you should expect that you need less engagements and touch points and therefore the click stream is shortened where it's like, yeah, you're going to see the ad and click, but the next time you come back, it's going to be for free or you're going to see the ad and click and then you're going to tell your friend and then that person will come or follow us on Instagram. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's a ton of engagements that we realized we could unlock with Facebook. We kind of went all in. And I will say like one thing that we did benefit from is at the time that we launched Casper launched and Casper came out with a bang. It was like, because they were able to raise so much money, we saw them spending basically in real time. If they do listen to this, <laughs> thank you for spending money everywhere. Because then we got a sense of like where, not like real competitors, but like pseudo competitors advertising, where is the market going? I think having both these cohorts of companies from 2011, 2012, and then also cohorts of companies from our era who raised more money spending in more alternative spaces was good. We're fortunate that one of the people on our board lives in New York. And so we kind of had ears on the ground Mm. here. It feels like there's kind of this New York D2C mafia where like everybody knows everyone. Everyone is like sharing information and intel. And, you know, at the time, California had a much smaller ecosystem, specifically L.A. And so we did rely heavily on his intel to be like, where do we go next? At that time, like podcast advertising was just starting to pick up. So we invested there. I would say that we overinvested. Another Why? I don't think you need to be on 50 podcasts. And we were like, we went Mm. from being on no podcast to like, I want to say 30 to 40 podcasts at the same time. Not all of them were big and we had some runaway successes, but you know, there's a point in which there is audience saturation or if not audience saturation, audience duplication. If we're on Mark Maron's podcast, like do we need to be on every other comedy podcast? Joe Rogan and yeah, it's like there's, 
And I think we learned that lesson the hard way. And then I don't know why we had this like second city test. We were mm -hmm. like, media is too expensive to buy in New York. Like we wanted to do a subway campaign and hang with the big dogs, but we couldn't. So we did a subway campaign in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I didn't even know they had a subway. They have a light rail train that takes you through the city. And so we were like, we're going to do a train wrap in Portland. And, you know, really for the 10th of the cost of a brand train, we were able to run for eight weeks. Hmm. We saw some lift, like a delayed lift. But I think it was a time where we were like, we were testing everything. And we learned a lot about like execution and creative and lift analysis and attribution. You know, not everything was a success. In terms of location, are you focusing just across the country? I mean, it sounds like there was yeah. some selectivity in terms of more the a little bit of the out of home stuff. What's interesting, and and this is where the use of lookalike models is both efficient but potentially scary, is it's like bit by bit you can change the makeup of your audience. So it's like with the Wall Street Journal in the early days, we skewed more male, but then as time went on and you're promoting more like my domain or remodelista or more female skewing content, then your audience mm. makeup becomes more female. Or let's say you're promoting like articles to older consumers and it's used older. And then that all of these little changes will inevitably change purchase behavior. We got this incredible article that was like parachutes robe is the best thing that I've ever used. And robe sales just went through the roof. Or like when we launched towels, there was still a novelty and like a direct to consumer mm -hmm. towel brand. But then we basically sold out of towels 100 times through. You have to be careful because it's like the decisions you make could have broad reaching right. effects. When you're in a position where inventory is not real time, we really started trying to understand and like building into our feedback loop, like what are people buying in addition to how are they being introduced to the brand? Yeah. So I guess moving into 2016, 2017, talk about kind of how the strategy kind of channel mix evolution yeah. started to go. I guess you dabbled in a bit of out of home, I yeah. guess, in 2015. But yeah, it was I'm such a small spend in Portland. <laughs> in retrospect, it was like we married it with like a couple newsletters from Portland Monthly. So we were aware like you need multiple touch points to make it work. But I think we were just playing in too small of a pool. And so going into 2016 and especially 2017, it's like, okay, we need a break even or better on first purchase. And like CAC is back. <laughs> so how did that manifest, I guess, in terms of 2016 was, I think, when we had to like get our shit together. And so by that stage, towards the latter half of 2015, we built out our initial marketing team. And so in 2016, it was like taking the strategies that we learned and running with it, which meant really running with this Facebook content marketing play. And then at different times, trying to throw in native advertising or content syndicators or promoters like Outbrain and Taboola and just continuously running that. What we started to run into, though, during 2016 is affiliates started to grow. Business insiders started like creating insiders picks and promoting people. And so we had a couple of huge wins out of that. But I think from business insiders perspective, they're like, OK, this works for Parachute. Why don't we do it for their competitors? And so. We saw like within like a couple months of our articles, Brooklyn and got one and then Brooklyn and started doing the same exact strategy and amplifying it at an even larger level. So you know, as we started going through 2016, there was this kind of like, this isn't going to work forever. Like we're going to have to come up with a more distinct point of view. We're going to have to invest more in creative and we're going to have to be more thoughtful about our marketing. And so, you know, without that first purchase, 
promotion, we had one less lever than our competitors. And that was a decision that we decided to make. Yeah. Talk a bit more about that because we've studied the effects of discounting for a very long time. Yeah. You have a lot of these brands that just out of the gate condition people to yeah. enjoy discounts. Very few actually abstain from yeah. that, but talk about how you decided that. And I'm sure there are times where you regretted it, but yeah. it stayed strong. In the early days, the only reason that we used discounts were for tracking offline marketing. So like when we first tested podcasts, we would give like a, a tangible discount. Right, because otherwise you have no way. Yeah. And then for out of home, we tried those, I like to call it the elevated value pack. You know, you'd get the mailer with seven cards in it and it'd be seven different brands and they'd each give you a discount. And we figured like, if you're going to be included in that pack, you might as well give a discount. But Really, the more I thought about it, it's like, why am I using discount codes to solve an analytics problem? I should become more rigorous about my analytics. I should not be using discounts. To me, it's like fake science when people say that giving discounts increases conversion rate, because of course it will. It's like self-fulfilling prophecy. If I stood outside any building anywhere and tried to offer people free money, you better believe everyone's going to take free money. Like That was the whole irony with these like bounce exchange landing pages where it's like, no, I don't want free money. Or like there is a yes or no question. When they try to get you to click out of the sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, do you want free shipping or $10? It's like, no, no, I'm, I like paying more for shipping. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm an asshole. And yeah. you like click no. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you can keep shopping. Yeah. <laughs> I think we try to avoid that traditional CRO mindset because the brands that I love, like Patagonia never did that to me. False urgency or false scarcity don't seem to be kind of motivators that encourage brand loyalty. And so we are always trying to think about like, how do we make people happy without having to constantly remind them that our products make them happy? As it related to new customer acquisition, it was always like, what is the story we need to tell? Like the reason content marketing and content syndication work so well is because we had other people telling the story for us. The reason influencer marketing worked so well in the early days is that we had other people telling the story for us. The reason that some podcasts would do really well is that the host had an amazingly engaged audience and they would tell the story well for us. There was like a very clear through line between what we did and what happened as a result of it. And, you know, now we're in a place where we have enough years of financial performance where like people aren't questioning the lack of discounts. As the market has changed, we have sometimes changed the discount amount. We have introduced a second sale for Memorial Day. And I think there is just a broader discussion internally, like how do we want to classify these sales. We don't want consumers to think that by naming a sale Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or Memorial Day, that there will be more sales. Like, it does feel very American to pair national holidays with sales. With capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it's like consumerism plus remembrance. <laughs> like, nothing says I love America like spending President's Day at a, the mall. Yes. So you may see us change to like our bi-yearly sale. You know, I, I think what Macy's and Nordstrom's and a lot of these retailers did really well in the past is it was very clear when they had their sales. And like we've gone so far as to put it in our FAQ because we want people to know it's like if you are price sensitive, I get it. I respect your decision to buy or not to buy a product. So there will be times of year where where we feel and find it amenable in terms of consumer sentiment, general marketplace to hold sales. But for the rest of the year, like I would prefer if you liked the product for what it was. And I think a lot of that mindset fomented in 2016 where it was like if you can't get somebody to like your product and like your brand for what it is, you have much longer term problems than right. simply the size of your discount. So you said you realized that you had to solve the attribution problem without using discounts. How yeah. did you go about that? You know, for podcasts, there's a vanity URL still. 
So it's like you can still track attribution in that way. Right, it's like markmaron.com slash Yeah, and so it's like when you then think about it, it's like how do we craft the copy in a way where when somebody's listening to the podcast, it still feels like there's a call to action, like visit parachute.com. So the way we decided is like talking about free shipping and returns. It's like go to parachute.com forward slash XYZ for free shipping and returns. So consumers would listen to it. It's like, okay, let me check out that website. And it was true. I mean, we do offer free shipping and free returns, but we offer it to everyone. And then I think anecdotal evidence is still important. We find that when we make some of these larger brand investments that everybody seems to be talking about the brand. And I don't think I need to run a brand lift survey in order to like completely understand the lift because it, it's clear that like it made an impact. Yep. I like to say to my team and to others, like the hardest thing that we have to do at Parachute is cross the awareness chasm. If you don't know about me, then you can't even consider me. And I think a lot of what startups have to do is cross this awareness gap before they can tell the story. And so a lot of what we do when we think about advertising is getting people intrigued about the brand without saying exactly what we do. Mm. 2017 kind of marks this watershed year where we start to really think about like, how do I get people interested in the brand without exactly saying what we do? Is that a shift further away from direct response and more towards brand advertising? Or is yeah. that not necessarily a trade-off? I think the moniker that I've heard use is brand response. It's like, how do you turn direct response into a branded experience? In my opinion, traditional brand response has that act now element. But there's nothing to act upon with a lot of our advertising. It's kind of like, if you like the way that this ad makes you feel, click to learn more. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, click to learn more. If you like that our subway ads are irreverent and speak to the idea of comfort, come check us out. There's so much heavy lifting that our website and our content and our other mediums have to do, but I'd rather have it that way. Like I'd rather have you speak to a real person in a store or customer experience than have an ad be like, we do this, 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 and this. Right. These are the five reasons you should buy Parachute because it's just like everybody has different reasons. And it's like to me within marketing, it's like you establish this touch point that brings someone in and then they provide signals that let you know like, OK, I'm, I'm a store shopper. I'm looking for towels I like this. I like I don't like this. And you use those signals to inform the customer journey and not vice versa. Mm. Like I'm not telling you what you want. You're telling me. I'm just telling you that we exist. And if you like what you're seeing, like we're here. <laughs> Do you think there's been an over-indexing given direct response as a tool from the platforms is relatively new in the grand scheme of advertising that many companies have over-indexed on the ability to be like, hey, do you want this thing now? Buy it. Here's a price. Yeah. Versus kind of more Yeah, of like you softer. go on the website, there's a timer. There's like, you see the ad. And even interesting, I guess, jumping forward a bit to you know Instagram checkout and Instagram product ads and so forth, there seems to be an increasing suite of tools getting built that are just like, here is the product. Do you want to buy it? Right? Yeah. It's compressing the awareness and the decision into almost one moment. Yeah. It sounds like you started to figure out we actually should elongate that. Yeah, where it's like you just need to respect whatever that yeah. decision is. You know, Consideration is consideration. We still find ourselves to be a middle market brand, but I think as our brand has grown to the point where we may be bigger than some of our higher price point competitors, we have to acknowledge that we, for some people, occupy the high end of the market. We are a premium brand. Premium brands carry a price tag. It's not a brand tax. We're not making exorbitant amounts of money off of you. But, you know, knowing that means that it's like, I have to do that much better of a job at storytelling. I want you to be like, this is exactly what I want. How did the messaging, I guess, evolve, you know, almost three years in, in terms of you said, you know, we had to stop talking about 
cut out the middleman and yeah. that whole stuff in I guess 2017-2018 now what's the MO that Yeah you guys so talk that's about? 2017 was the first time we worked with the outside creative agency for our, our subway ads and that involved the deep dive into who are we At different times during the prior 3 years had talked about being a home brand but it was like kind of comical cuz we were only in maybe two rooms of the house <laughs> And so we kind of came to settle on like very comfortable bedding and bath linens. And it made a lot of sense because it was like, that is exactly what we do. And it's like, we're going to be a home brand. We're still parachute home. The vision is there, but we were alternating too much in, in the early days between home and bedding and home and bedding. And it was like, let's just be bedding and bath right now because that's who we are and that's what we do. At some points, we used to talk explicitly about quality. But we kind of found that like if you see our factory footage, if you see our products, if you feel them, if you go to the website, the concept of quality will be conveyed implicitly. And value and price in a world with us and Brooklinen and Target, we occupied very different price levels. And so the concept of price and therefore value is entirely subjective. So we decided like I'm not here to tell you that we're a good value. I'm not here to tell you we're luxury for less. That's your decision. You're going to tell me what you think we're worth and that will come out in the NPS score. You know, if we're not the right value for money, let's fix that. And if we are, that's great. 2017 marked us like leaning into how the products make you feel and not what the products are. One of the things that has been clear is that Parachute aims to become call it a lifestyle brand or whatever term you want to call of having a, a wide kind of product assortment across. As the brand started to launch more products, was that more challenging for you to control the messaging or was it we have so much more surface area to market on and so many new ways to bring people in that it actually is a huge advantage? Well, I think it's like after the launch of Towels in 2016, it became important to make sure that the web experience and the offsite experience was not just talking about bedding. You know, it's like we need to be both a bedding and a bath brand. And then when we leaned into it formally is like we need to be a bedding and a bath brand. Like we need to talk about them the same way. There needs to be a content ecosystem around both of them. We can't be favoring one or the other. Yes, one drives more revenue for the business than the other, but it's like the viability of the product and the ability to gain trust in another room of the house is predicated on us A, you know, making sure everything works for bedding, but also B demonstrating the same area expertise, demonstrating the same thoughtfulness with bath. And then I think, you know, in 2018 and beyond as we introduce more decor items, as we introduce tabletop, as we introduce baby, and now more recently like the mattress and rugs, it's the same thing. It's like we do go through positioning exercises where it's like where do our products sit within the market in terms of price, in terms of features, in terms of availability, what makes them unique and like what are the reasons why somebody would buy them from us. And I think as we think about our like 3-year plan and beyond, it's thinking about what are the other product adjacencies that we can utilize that make sense. The biggest danger in our business is that when you talk about newness people get excited, but when you talk about newness behind the scenes you're adding operational complexity. And you know, skew proliferation is a real thing. And again, we're very thankful to have investors and advisors and people in the company who will start ringing alarm bells if they feel like there's too much newness or adding on too much too fast because there is a lot of implicit costs. Every time I add a SKU, marketing has to talk about it. Customer service needs to learn about it. Logistics needs to understand how to handle it. You know, retail has to carry it. This concept of infinite shelf space is a fallacy. Every time you add a SKU, you add operational complexity and potentially are affecting your bottom line. Right. Yeah, we wrote something a while ago about the real question on the internet is not about the shelf space, but about the entry points. Yeah. And there are a finite amount of 
entry point someone can have to a brand, even if you stock a billion yeah. products. I think that is where we've been very mindful. It's cool to have a lot of new entry points into the brand. And I think when we think about our products on a need to want spectrum, you know, we want to make sure that there's a healthy balance of need and want. Like in terms of 2017, the other big theme that is carried over into 2018 and 2019 is we set the foundation for diversifying our marketing mix. I'd like to think that we were a little bit ahead of the game in terms of reducing our reliance on Facebook and Instagram. And a lot of that was just done in like, in response to the arms race. It was like, we're never gonna win this content marketing arms race in a world in which insider picks says Brooklinen is better than Parachute or in a world in which this blogger likes Ball and Branch better than Parachute. If we only are syndicating content, then we're basically telling consumers to read content. And when they read content, we're not always gonna win. Like if Wirecutter doesn't think we're the best product in the market, then we're kind of fucked. So it was kind of like, we need to do real marketing. We need to have legit creative. We need to have a clear point of view. We need to remember the four P's. It's like kind of going back to basics. It was good that we went through it. It was a hard transition at first, but by the end of 2017, we had the foundation of our marketing mix. And then 2018 was kind of expanding upon it and refining it. And 2019 has been a further refinement really of that. It's like now we know the channels we need to be in. We know the rough contribution each one makes and we know what each one needs to do and in some cases not to do. So I'm curious then to talk a bit more about kind of the out of home piece, which I assume has been a big focus along then. And then also about retail and kind of how you've thought about that from a marketing perspective. And then also how do you market it? So out of home is... In New York, it's like a rite of passage, you know. Or you're like, raising a new round. Or yeah, something. exactly. There's like, it's it's surreptitious. I still think it works. I think that New Yorkers take pride in their ability to see media in a world mm. that is saturated with media. I find it endearing. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's a reason why the brands are still advertising on the subway, even in the face of rising costs and increased competition. It's because it works. Out of home helps you to market to people when they're in their third place. You know, if you consider work and home, you're the first two places, the third place is the time in between. For a brand that is about comfort and for a brand that reminds you of the qualities of home and the feeling of being at home, when you're shoulder to shoulder and it's hot and sweaty and you're forced to look up, (laughs) or when you're in LA traffic and it feels like you're never gonna move, between our podcast advertising and our out of home, like we want to be a happy distraction. I'm not pretending that you wanted to look at that billboard or that subway card. And that's where like we have decided to do a hard tack away from use code subway. I don't give a shit if I can track it perfectly and granularly. I think what's very interesting about vanity URLs is the more you look into the use of them, only like a 10th of people are actually remembering the exact vanity URL. Only a 10th of people are remembering the code. So it doesn't really solve an attribution problem. And the thing that I'm trying to solve, as I said, is brand awareness. I think we've been mindful about like, what is the cadence for out of home? We simply cannot afford to be on the subway every month, as great as that would sound. We can't be an out of home in every market. So I think what we've done is make sure it's like, what are the circumstances in which it's okay to run out of home? And we kind of now have a checklist. And it's like, what are the circumstances in which the novelty of out of home is superseding its use? Because it's real, right? Like, as cool as it would be for me to have a wall mural next to Staples Center in downtown LA, that would cost so much money and it would affect so few people that, (laughs) that I would just be doing it for myself. And I think the hardest part with some of these larger brand investments is like, 
circumventing the novelty of doing it. I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this to keep my job. Like I, I've heard of stories of people buying billboards on their boss's route home. So it's like, oh, wow, we're everywhere. Right. Or, or investors. Or... Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, wow, parachutes everywhere. And yeah. it's like, I actually want to be everywhere. But, you know, you have to make hard decisions. I remember there's been a couple of times where Ariel's like, why is our billboard there? And I had to explain. It's like, well, this is a very heavily trafficked area. Like people who are driving through this are actually perfect for our customer group. Yes, this billboard's above a dry cleaner and it's kind of dirty in the area, but I swear we're getting the right impressions. <laughs> and it's like you have to think about out of home in that way and be able to like really disassociate what is cool and what is effective. When you get into a buy is realizing the level of a commitment that you have to make. And then I think figuring out like how much can you squeeze into there? Because there are kind of hard budget parameters that will force you to decide where you're going to be. I can't be everywhere. I can't do kiosks and taxis and subway and billboards and wild postings. I'm going to have to choose the combination of two or three or even maybe one plus a digital component that I think will do the best. Yep. There is the risk involved, but I think that is what makes it have the potential for higher ROI. If you think about the digital world, in my opinion, measurement is directly correlated with success, you know, it's like, I know what this is worth, so I know how much to pay and I know what it needs to do. When you start going into worlds where there isn't a clearly defined pricing structure and there isn't a clearly defined attribution methodology, to me, that's where the most opportunity is. You know, the trader inside of me is like, that's the arbitrage opportunity is when you're able to find media that is underpriced within your own estimated value. What about the retail piece? Retail is a billboard, but it's one billboard. And when I do a billboard buy, I never buy one billboard. I buy many billboards. I think the awareness play is very hyped. And, you know, when our store in Soho is on a main thoroughway, it's on Grand Street, Grand and Crosby. So people are going to walk by it. But we increasingly are seeing it more as like an engagement and a retention tool. Because so much of retail is still offline for home furnishing specifically, and a lot of that's driven by hard goods like sofas. We need to have stores. You know, it's a tactile experience. For some people, they just want to see it and touch it and feel it. Yes, we have a free shipping. Yes, we have free returns. Yes, we have a 90-day trial. That's great. We're reducing a lot of friction. But for some people, that just simply doesn't matter. The same person who wants to go to the farmer's market to choose their produce and doesn't like Amazon Prime now is going to probably be the same person who goes to our stores tries it and then buys it at home. And it's like once they've had that proof point, you can probably get them to buy online. But until they have that proof point, you're nothing more than pretty pictures. So like, it's interesting, the similarities between retail and out of home is it's a very large upfront investment with a longer term payoff. A retail store is more like an annuity and that like it continuously pays off. Whereas a out of home kind of, it has a well-defined half-life. Mm -hmm. So when I'm thinking about the funnel, with retail, it's another place for somebody to convert. I'm both product and sales channel agnostic. If you want to buy towels in a store, that's great. Let's figure out a way to let you know that we have stores, A, and that we have towels at our stores. And I think as we get a tighter omnichannel tech integration, we'll have the ability to say all those acronyms like buy online, pick up in store, ship to store, ship from store, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that'll be valuable. And as we think about retail, it's like making sure that we're in all of our top DMAs, 
making sure that within those DMAs, we're in neighborhoods that represent who we want to be and where we want to be. You want to be close to your tribe. You want to have the right co-tenants. You want to have the right adjacencies. Like, what do we love about being in Nolita is there's great shops there. There's great restaurants there. People live there. People work there. So it just ensures that there's kind of a steady stream of traffic. And because of the way that we advertise, we find that a lot of the people who come into our stores are destination shoppers. It's like I saw you here and now I'm coming in to see it for real. And so that's where it's like this perfect medium where if you have a diversified marketing mix, a diversified product mix and a diversified sales channel mix, chances are you're going to be able to find the right combination of the three to get people to buy something and enjoy the brand. We can talk about the mattress now. I think it this, is the mattress. It the is. mattress. The addition of the mattress was very interesting. We wrote something about it, which I think caught the attention of the team. I'm curious just to hear about the thinking behind it. I guess for a little bit of context, mentioning Casper before has just burned a few hundred million dollars effectively on marketing, trying to build their business around a single product. I think, as you alluded to earlier, they've done some trailblazing in terms of consumer awareness and so forth. At the same time, they have now started to go into other kind of adjacent products that I will say are probably a little less exciting and much less profitable and interesting than their core products, such as like night lights and like a desk stand and so forth. So they're moving away from kind of the core a little bit or attempting to branch out. Yeah. Parachute has said, we have a wide skew assortment. And then this is the thing we're going to do five years into the business versus the thing we're going to start with. Yeah. Why? The reason why starts with Ariel. The reason why we started with sheets is that they're the thing that you touch and feel. Mattresses are incredibly important to a good night's sleep, but products that you are most intimate with, you know, for lack of a better phrase, are the sheets. A lot of people associate good sleep with good sheets. Unless they have a really shitty mattress or like maybe no box spring or like no bed frame. There can be extenuating circumstances, but by and large, it's like you associate your sleep with your sheets. The Western Heavenly Bled you know, the reason they were able to create this kind of ecosystem of products is I think is because of the sleep experience. I think why we didn't launch a mattress sooner, A, I don't think from a technology perspective, we would have been able to produce that mattress five years ago. And B, it would have come off as contrived. I think we had to establish trust with enough people in the sleep space such that when we completed the sleep experience, it felt authentic. Consumers have been asking what mattresses do you recommend? We knew that the nascent demand was in there. It was just a matter of like, how do we enter the mattress wars in a way that feels authentic to us? I think once we had ironed out the positioning, both in terms of like, where does this sit within the ecosystem? Technically our mattress is like an eco hybrid, which is distinct from a lot of what else you see. It was like, interestingly enough, we have a press story and we've been very fortunate. We've, I think gotten 45 pieces of press coverage on the mattress bigger than pretty much any single product to date. Hmm. I would almost argue that we got more press about the mattress than we did as a brand when we launched. And so part of the reason we found success with the product is that it's back to basics, right? We're using owned and earned media to sell a product instead of paid media. So all of the shortfalls when it comes to thinking about the margin stack, all of the shortfalls with thinking about what goes into selling a mattress are not problems that we have. We don't need to sell mattresses to succeed but we're selling mattresses anyways. Does that make it then more of a retention product than an acquisition product? Or What blows my mind is that we thought that initially. And so like, okay, our whole strategy is just going to be to get everyone who bought sheets a mattress. I think what we found is that 
whoever bought sheets had already probably bought a mattress and as lovely as our mattress is shelling out another $2,000, which wasn't exactly in their plans. In the early days, the majority of our sales have actually been from new customers, mm -hmm. which blew my mind. It's been really interesting seeing how people are buying the mattress because one thing it we found is like people are starting to buy split mattresses. So it's like if you buy split mattresses, then you need to have two twin XL sheets and a bed set. So we introduced a split king bedding set. Mm. It feels like deja vu because we're going through the same process of learning. How do customers buy this product? How does that align with our initial hypothesis? How do we update the content on site? How do we update content on the blog? How do we improve the inbound and outbound logistics? What does the in-store experience look like? How do we want to merchandise and present the mattresses? And we're still working through a lot of that. There've been some initial paid media tests, but until we nail everything and like have been through enough people getting past their 90 day returns window, it's not mission critical for us to develop a winning paid strategy. Yeah, we've been really fortunate both in terms of the coverage and in terms of the customer response. And I think we're really excited for the future of like what the mattress holds in terms of building out what we consider to be like the parachute sleep system. So the undertone of this entire conversation is the escalating speed of the arms race yeah. from a marketing perspective. People have talked about a nauseam, internet lowers a barrier of entry, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but the barrier of success is so much higher now because yeah. of that competition. Is this ever going to slow down or is this the new normal and or are we going to look back in three years and go, this was actually really calm and easy compared yeah. to what's coming? For me, I don't think it will ever calm down, at least internally. Like we're always looking for the next big thing. I do think we're going to find a point in which I don't know if you can invent another Pinterest or hmm. you know, like if TikTok IPOs, then it's like, what is left? You know, Especially I, with all the negative sentiment around the platforms these days. Yeah, and, it's like you have Twitch, you have like the whole world is either acquired, owned or IPO'd. A lot of the media companies have evolved. A lot of influencer marketing has evolved. I think we're going to see continued evolution of those things, you know, in the same way that Gwyneth Paltrow took a newsletter and turned it into a marketplace, a DTC company and a publishing house. We're seeing other influencers do that. I think it's just a continued evolution. And so I think there comes a point where like you can no longer go to a marketing meetup and say that you have the hot new idea and everyone's like, Ooh, tell me about it. I think it's more everyone's developing their own recipe books where it's like the known universe is pretty straightforward. And then it's like, what combination of channels are you using to win? And I think that's changed a lot. We went from like, how much are you spending on Facebook to what percentage of it is of your budget? That is the future. It's not, what are you all in on? It's like, what are you doing? And then what else are you doing about it? My final question, I guess, is what do you consider the biggest threat to marketing success for you over the next few years? Honestly, I think the biggest changes that could come out would be at a macroeconomic level. Things have been great, but there are like large macroeconomic issues that could start in China and then spread to the rest of the world. They've managed to avoid slowdowns a couple times now, but it's like if something happens there, it will likely be felt everywhere. We still don't know what the impact of a hard Brexit would be on international markets. The sense like people's wealth is tied up in usually securities and property. Back to the trading life. Yeah. So if something happens to either securities or property, it's going to affect us. Yes, luxury goods are more recession proof than others. But we have to remember that we're a VC-backed company and a private equity-backed company. Like we have growth goals. And so it's like if there were 
large macroeconomic changes, it would fundamentally change the way that I marketed. And it would fundamentally change like how profitable we need to be, how important retention would need to be, and how important acquisition would need to be. So I actually think that's the biggest. Mm. I think the only other ones in terms of like exogenous factors would be if one of our direct competitors got acquired. And uh, just had a massive budget. Yeah. Because in a lot of ways, like I think Williams Sonoma Group has done a very good job of migrating to online. Like they are pretty digitally savvy. And from what I understand from their financial reports, like pretty balanced mix. I think another big one would be like if Restoration Hardware decided to go all in on digital. Hmm. It blows my mind, but they don't have an Instagram account. Hmm. And their site is not mobile friendly. And they don't believe in paid search advertising. It's amazing how these bigger guys can get away with just not trying. Yeah, and so it's like if they did a pivot, that would be scary because it's like they have beautiful showrooms. Like the one in New York is insane. Yeah. I think them building a hotel makes a ton of sense. You know, it's like they have brand cachet. They make nice products. You know, what's to say they can't do it? And we have noticed that more brands are trying to mimic the way that we shoot product, the way that we do our creative. It's just more like as there is more sameness, there are less reasons to believe. I guess to me, like the consistent evolution of our brand and our messaging is a constant. So I'm not worried about that. I'm more worried about other bigger, badder players like or if Amazon decided that they were going to fundamentally change their web experience or go the Walmart route and start spinning off sites. Mm -hmm. So like rather than selling owned brands on Amazon, they sold them on their own D2C sites. That could be scary. The competition will come from outside. And then from us, it's just making sure that we're able to react accordingly. Very cool. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Megaphone Podcast, a show from Loose Threads. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, and we hope you tune in next week.